all with the intent that when we look at who we are and we look at what we believe and why we believe it and where we've come from, that God would begin to lead us into a future of where we're going. As God begins to open doors, I begin to ask you to dream big dreams and seek God's vision. The Bible says that God gives dreams and visions to individual Christians and to the church to lead us to do bigger things than we could ever imagine. The Bible says in Ephesians that God had work pre-planned for each one of us. Well, how do we know what that work is? We find it in God's Word and through His dreams and visions. Those things He plants on our hearts that are bigger than we ever thought we could imagine. And the same is true for the church, that God has dreams and visions for the church. And for us to move forward, we're not content with just doing what we're doing, being happy with where we are and celebrating what's going on now. We need to be focused on what we should be doing. Because part of being, uh, having a vision or a dream being birthed in you is the conviction, if you remember, uh, of what is and what could be, and more importantly, what should be. It's that tension between looking at how things are and then seeing how things could be if God could only begin to move. And so this summer, we took a little detour into the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah gives us an incredible picture of someone who had a dream birthed in them and saw it come to reality. And so we've walked that path. And this morning, as we continue in Nehemiah, Nehemiah's story and our story from This Is Us will begin to converge. Because this morning, I'm going to begin to lay out my vision, my dream for some of the things that God is calling us to do. And it's coming from a story that we looked at a little bit last week in the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. I've told you before, if you're just new to us, that Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. If you go to Psalms, which is the largest book in the Old Testament, go back a couple of books, past Job, past Esther, you'll find Nehemiah there. But Nehemiah was one of the last prophets in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not chronological. Nehemiah's story comes at the very end of the Old Testament time. Children of Israel had been in slavery. They had been in bondage. Remember, their sin as the southern kingdom, God allowed them, because of their sin and disobedience, to be captured. And Nebuchadnezzar and his army, the Babylonians, came in and destroyed Jerusalem and captured all of the Israelites, took them into slavery. They were in slavery for 70 years, and after that 70 years, the Persian Empire had taken over the Babylonian Empire, and a new king arose, King Cyrus, who's called Cyrus the Great. And the Persians were different than the Babylonians in that they didn't believe in taking people captive. They believed in letting people live in the place that they were as they overthrowed them, as they overtook them, but letting them live there as lieges or or servants, really, to a main kingdom. So he believed it was time to send the Israelites home. So a hundred years before Nehemiah's story, a group of Israelites, for the first time under a man named Zerubbabel, went back to Jerusalem. And for that 70, 75 years, nothing changed in Jerusalem. Then Ezra, about 10 years before Nehemiah's story, goes back. He's a high priest. Goes back to see worship, be brought back to Jerusalem. And then nothing happens. And Nehemiah comes along. And Nehemiah is working for the new king in the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. And he hears a story that Jerusalem has not changed. In the 170 years that the people have been back, nothing has changed. They're not safe. The walls haven't been rebuilt. The temple has not been rebuilt. They're not even gathering together for the the corporate worship time. 
So Nehemiah gets a burden on his heart of what is and what could be. And he travels to Jerusalem with a vision to see the walls of God's city be rebuilt. Now, when we read the story, and we've been reading it through this summer, it's easy for us to think, okay, Nehemiah went back, he said, let's build the walls, and they built the walls. We don't get an idea of the magnitude of how big this vision was. For 170 years, there had been no walls. All that was left was rubble. They had gotten used to it the way it was. They didn't see it was a big deal that God's city hadn't been rebuilt. And for this guy that none of them really knew to come in and say, God has told me we have got to rebuild the walls, it's a bigger deal than just coming off the pages of the book of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah does that. He cast a vision and the people in their hearts begin to get a burden to see that God's city be protected once again. And so they went to work. They caught a vision. And the plan was very simple. Each person, each group would take the wall in front of their home or in front of their business and start working. And overcoming opposition, both without and within, uh, things that rose up, people not being treated fair, different things coming up. Through all of that, Nehemiah kept them on track. And in record time, 52 days, less than two months, they completed the task that hadn't been done in 170 years. That's unbelievable. It's beyond our comprehension of how big a deal this is. A mile and a half around the old city of Jerusalem, a wall eight foot all of a sudden stood. So their job was done. The people went back to their villages, back to their farms. But even in that, they were still not complete. They sensed there was something still wrong. They began to recognize that even though the walls to the city were built, even though they had security, even though they had everything that they wanted, something wasn't right. They didn't have the power and the presence of God. It was God's city, but God didn't dwell there anymore. See, what we need to understand is you can have everything you ever thought would bring you happiness and joy. You can have a great job and a great career and a great family and a big house and everything that you ever thought was going to bring you success. You can have all of that and still be empty, still be missing something. Because we learned a couple of weeks ago that those things were never created to fill the God-shaped void that's in each one of our spirits. You can eat it, and you can eat it, and you can eat it, but it'll never replace the things of God. So the Israelites began to cry out for God. And the Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 8, they gathered together on Rosh Hashanah, which they normally would do. It's the Jewish New Year, the first of September. Had a festival, a tabernacle festival. Festival of the tents is what some people would call it. They gathered together, and as they gathered together, the first thing they asked is, as all of them gathered, 65 to 70,000 people there at the water gate, and you can read about it in, in Nehemiah 8, as they gathered, they began to cry out, bring us the word of God. Because they recognized that the only way to be reconciled with God, the only way to experience God's power and presence was through the word of God. And so Ezra, the high priest, got out the Word of God and he began to read it. And it says in Nehemiah 8 that they stood completely still for six hours as Ezra read from the book of the law. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And as Ezra read, they said the power of God's Word overwhelmed the people and they got broken because they began to realize that the whole reason they had been enslaved was because of their own sin. 
Wasn't, wasn't Babylon's fault, wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's fault, wasn't Xerxes' fault or Cyrus' fault. It was their fault. And they began to repent, it says in Nehemiah. They began to fall on their face and weep. Because we need to understand that sin always leads to slavery. And as they begin to weep, it says the priest would go around and begin to tell them, listen, it's okay. Even in the midst of our worry, even in the midst of our slavery, God was still there. And as they began to understand how much God loved them, they began to weep with joy, began to sing, began to dance. Because they understood that as long as as we understand that sin leads to slavery, that repentance will always lead to reconciliation because they begin to say it's our fault. And as they said that, God's power and presence came and they were reconciled. Now for most of us in the church, that's as far as we go in our relationship to God. We think that's all there is. We sinned, it broke God's heart, so I'm going to confess my sin, and in confessing my sin, I am reconciled in my relationship to God. Me and God are right. And then we walk out and go do our thing, and and it becomes a cycle. We sin, and we ask God for forgiveness, and we're reconciled. But the Israelites understood, and you need to know this morning, that there's much more than that to a relationship to God. Really, that's not even a relationship. You see, they began to say, we want more. We, we want to experience not just being reconciled. We want His power. We want His presence again. We remember as he read the story that God's presence went in front of the people with a cloud and with fire. We want to experience that. And so they began to get a hunger for God, it said, and they began to cry out for God's Word. And we learned two weeks ago that when you begin to hunger for God, God will begin to speak to you and He will begin to fill you. But the difference between just going through the routine and having a relationship is what you do when God speaks to you. The Bible tells us that it's more than just hearing that you're supposed to be faithful and act on it. And that's the difference for us this morning. We learned last week that God is calling you and I to obedience. We are supposed to act on what the Word of God says. We're supposed to take these truths and make them a part of our life, to make them a part of who we are. And as we learned last week, that it is in obedience, it's when we say yes to God, when we are faithfully obedient, that God begins to reveal to us why He's asking us to be obedient. People ask me all the time, Pastor, I don't understand why God wants me to do this or why God wants me to do that. It's not for you to understand, it's for you to obey. And as you obey, that is where the understanding comes. See, most of us never experience the blessings of God because we read it and we say, that doesn't make sense, or the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and we say, I don't have time for that, or I'm not comfortable doing that, or I don't know if I can do that. And we put it off and we put it off and we don't understand when if we would just obey, remember the definition of obedience, doing what you're told, when you're told, with the right heart attitude, you take any of those away, it's not obedience. If we would just do what God tells us to do, in doing it, we begin to see why He asked us to do it in the first place. And all of a sudden, the Bible says they were filled with joy. Well, here's what I want you to see this morning. What were they asked to do? What did God ask them to do to be obedient? What was He seeking that they do? So let's read. We're going to read the same verses we read last week, just a little bit of them. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the second day of the month, the heads of all the family, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention. That means they were zoned in. They just didn't want to hear the word. They wanted the word to speak to them. 
They weren't distracted. They weren't doing other things. They were focused on what God was saying to them. To give attention to the Word of God. They found written in the law, which was the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in Booth during the Feast of the Seventh Month. That is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where they live in the little shacks that they put together we talked about last week. And, and this is what we want to see, that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns and all of Jerusalem. Proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns. What is God asking them to do? Tell everyone they know that God is still alive and that He has a personal word for them. What were they asked to do? Simple. Tell everyone around what happened to them. And that's the same call that God has on my life and your life today. Even though this is the Old Testament and we live in the New Covenant, the call is no different. Jesus tells us that when we become followers of His, that our first responsibility, our most important responsibility, is to share what God did for us to those around us. To go and proclaim Spread the word. Just like the children of God, you and I are called through Jesus Christ to share the good news of the gospel, to tell others what God is doing in our life. The first step of obedience, anytime you have been reconciled with God, people say, I don't know what to do now. The first step is to proclaim what God's done in your life. To share what God's done in your life. You see, we've made evangelism, and this is the church, we've made evangelism one of those steps that's way down here. You know, you go to church, you memorize scripture, you learn these little principles, and you got to be active in church for a while, and you go through this class, and you go through that class, and then maybe you're ready to share. In the New Testament, it wasn't like that. In the New Testament, it was, you experience the power and presence of God. You get radically transformed. You go from death to life, and you're saved. And the first thing that you want to do is share, proclaim. The woman at the well, she ran back to her town and she began to tell her, you got to come meet this man. He changed my life. She didn't know theology. She didn't know scripture verses. She hadn't had a class on the four spiritual laws. All she knew was Jesus talked to me. The man at the pool of Bethesda who was blind and Jesus put mud pies on his eyes. When he opened his eyes after wiping that mud away, He could see for the first time in his life. He said, what am I to do? Jesus said, go and tell your friends what happened here. You see, sharing what Jesus has done in our life, it's part of our DNA. It's not something we do, it's who we are. The last words that Jesus had to his disciples, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What he's saying is, as you live life, share your story. Listen to what Luke says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Luke's version of the same call. For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness. You will go and testify. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You see, I think in the church we have forgotten that our first and most important task, our main mission is to share Jesus Christ with those around us. To share the good news. I want you to think about something. I want you to to engage your mind for just a minute. I know school hasn't started yet, but you can engage your mind just for a minute. I want you to think with me. For the first 1,500 years of Christianity, 
from the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to about 1550, the only way the gospel was shared was by word of mouth. Most people didn't read. They didn't have a Bible in their language. They couldn't read it on their own. The way the gospel was shared was one person telling another person. And in 1,500 years, the gospel had been spread that way to the corners of the earth. Then think about the next 350 years, from 1550 to about 1850. 1500 1850. Think about all the things that changed that allowed the gospel to be spread more. You, you began to have modes of transportation, modern mission societies. The great awakenings took place, and they had these great meetings, and people were getting saved in mass numbers. But even then, for that next 350 years, the main way the gospel was shared was word of mouth. Sharing it one to another, to a coworker, to a teammate, to a fellow student, to a next door neighbor. People sharing their story. Now think about the last, these last 150 years, 160 years. Think about all the changes that have happened in the last 160 years of means to be able to share the gospel. Radio, television, telephones. All the movies. People could hear, they could tape the gospel in another language and the Bible in another language and, and send it around the world. People could leave in, in one day and fly to places that used to take them months to go and share the gospel and then fly home. Even more so, think about the last 18 years. Think about the modes that have been opened up to be able to share the gospel in the last 18 years. Now, if you don't remember, 18 years ago, having a beeper was cutting edge. You used to have to carry a beeper. Some of you young people, you had to carry a beeper. And that was cool. The 90s, you had a beeper. When both my kids were born, I had a beeper. And so I could be out playing golf, and my wife could go into labor, and she could beat me. And then I had to drive the golf course somewhere to find a phone so that I could call and make sure that she was actually having the baby. But it was cool. You'd get a hold of me. There were cell phones. But most of them were bags, and you picked it up out of the bag, and the bag was mostly a battery, and you had a little phone. Now, you could get the handheld. They were about this big. They were like a brick. But it cost you about $800 and about $200 a month. 20 years ago, 18 years ago, the Internet was dial-up. Do you remember that? Amen? When you went to download something, it said your, your page will download in 18 hours, 40 hours. And you looked at it like, what? You're hooked up to the internet and you're there. You're like, come on. Right? In 18 years, think of how many things have changed. All of us now carry in our hand the amount of computing power that was enough to send the men to the moon in 1969. We have more computing power in our cell phones than was allowed to send the men to the moon. And that was two rooms bigger than this room full of computers. Phones. We, we can now push a button and we can talk to somebody on the other side of the world, but more than just talk to them, we can see them and they can see us. Social media, you're now able to talk to hundreds of people at one time. Information is at your fingertips. My kids were able to be baptized and my parents were able to watch it 2,000 miles away live. That was unheard of just 20 years ago. All those ways of communication to now share the gospel. 
Matter of fact, researchers say now in America that the average person spends more time online than anything else they do besides sleeping and working. More time online. We're online all the time. Let me ask you this. With all that communication and all these modes of talking to one another and reaching one another, what are we saying? What are we saying that matters? We share recipes. We share what happened in our day. We share sometimes way too much personal information. But do we ever share anything that matters for eternity? See, let me ask you to think about this. In the last 10 years in the United States of America, for the first time ever in our history, the number of people converting to Jesus Christ, giving their life to Jesus Christ, has declined every year for a 10-year period. First time that's ever happened in the United States of America. At the same time, we have more ways to communicate, better ways to communicate. We're communicating more, but yet people coming to Jesus Christ continues to go down. Last year in the United States of America, 45,000 churches did not have one convert. In 365 days, 45,000 churches did not see one person in that church or around that church come to know Jesus Christ. See, we're talking more, but are we saying anything? Are we saying anything that matters? Baptist circles. Baptists have seen baptism decline for the last 20 years every year. Matter of fact, the average now for a convert in a Baptist church, they said, it takes 38 members, 32 years to see one person come to know Christ. That's how good we're doing. You see, I'm afraid we're, we're sharing and we're communicating and we're talking, but we're saying so little. Now, it's easy to, to think of those numbers and think of them in an abstract. But let me bring it home to you. Last year, this church, First Baptist Church of Blowing Rock, which I believe is an alive church and is seeking God and doing more things good than we do things bad. Last year in our church, we had 19 baptisms of which little more than half, nine, ten, were new converts, new people to come to know Jesus Christ. And understand, we celebrate that. One person coming to know Christ is a celebration. One person going from death to life, that is phenomenal. And we celebrated every one of those nine. But for a church that averages 300 in worship and has over 400 members, is, is that enough? 350 people, 365 days, nine people coming to Christ. Is that enough for you? Let me ask you, how many times did you share your faith last year, personally? I'll make it easy. How many times did you share your Jesus story last year? I'm not talking about some gospel presentation or, or going through some ritual or routine or memorizing. I'm just talking about sharing what Jesus did for you, to your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your teammates, people online. Just saying, this is what Jesus did in my life. He took me from here to here, and I didn't deserve it. Just sharing. How many people did you share with? How many people did you personally talk to? Now, I know we say, well, I invited somebody to church, and that's awesome. 
I, I encourage you to embrace. 88% of the people that have come to this church and visited this church do so because somebody invited them one-on-one. And that is incredible and phenomenal. And I'm excited that you invite people to church. And God has blessed us. Last winter, we had the largest crowds we've had in 10 years. This summer, we've had the largest crowds we've had in 10 years. We've seen our children's ministry is overflowing with kids. God is blessing us in every corner. But... of those who come to know Jesus Christ do so outside the walls of the church. See, only 7% of conversions in the last 10 years happened in church. 93% happened one-on-one out there. What does that say to us? Have we forgotten who we are and what we're called to do? Have we forgotten? Have we taken our eyes and been distracted? And we've done a lot of other good things and done a lot of, of, of things that have meant something to people's lives and made a difference in the kingdom, but yet we've lost focus that our main task is helping people come to know and experience Jesus Christ's salvation. Amen. You see, we've got to regain our sense of urgency. We've got to regain our sense of intentional focus on sharing the gospel. We've got to open our hearts and our eyes that there is something going on around us that you and I are called to be a part of. See, Jesus didn't say there in Acts that we've got to give a theological treatise. He didn't say memorize a lot of scripture. He didn't say stand on a street corner and preach at people. What he said is share your story. Be a witness. What does a witness do? Just tell us what they experienced. We've made evangelism hard and scary. Some of you are looking at me and you're saying, I, I can't do that. You can't. I see some of the stuff you share online. But yet you can't tell somebody, you can't tell a worker or a friend or a family member or a guy you sit next to at a sports game that you play sports with what Jesus did for you. You see, you don't have to convince them. You don't have to build a case. That's not your role. Your role is being a witness. What does a witness do in a trial? Just tells what happened to them. Tells what they saw. Tells what they experienced. And you see, what God does in our lives is all around us, the Holy Spirit is building cases for Jesus and for salvation. And He calls us to be the witness. And this is where obedience is so important. The thing about being a witness is we don't know where we come into trial in someone else's life. You say, Pastor, I ain't got nothing to share. My my testimony is boring. Not if God's building a case and He needs you to testify exactly what happened to you. And He says, listen, go tell that person or you speak up right now or tell this person what I did in your life. You say, I don't have time. I can't do that. I'm embarrassed. I'm not comfortable with that. You don't know that you were the pivotal witness that was building everything else together in that person's heart to see them come to know Jesus Christ. But because you walked away, the case failed. So you don't have to convince him. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He builds the case. He brings conviction. He brings the salvation. All you do is testify. How hard is that? You and I have been subpoenaed to testify. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. If all you have is a story, you have enough. If you went from death to life, 
dying to living. You've got a story. It's got to be our top priority. It's got to be who we are. And as we move forward, as God calls us as a church to move forward, it has got to be foundational to everything we do. That we are about sharing the good news to this community, to our region, to our area, to everybody that will listen. And I'm not just talking about from this pulpit. I'm talking about from your workplace and from your homes and from your neighborhoods and from your ball games and, and schools. Let me read just a passage, parable that Jesus told where the song we sang earlier comes from. Matthew 18, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to see any of these little ones move away. One of the first things that we're going to begin to do, and, and if we believe that God has called us to testify, if we believe that we are called to be witnesses, one of the first things that I have a dream and have a vision for this church to be a part of is what I'm calling Operation 99. And these are practical things that I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that you and I have got to be about doing to see us become focused on evangelism. These are practical things that I think will help us focus more on sharing the gospel, reaching the unchurched and out of church and the never churched. And the thing is, all of these things that I'm about to share with you, and I'm going to close with this. These are what I'm going to, practical things. And this isn't the only week. Some of you are going to say, well, that's not for me. Well, next week may be for you, or the next week may be for you. I'm casting a vision that come out of this evangelism. And the interesting thing is, as I prayed about it for the last six months, I've been praying about this, and every one of these ideas that I'm about to share with you, I have presented and talked about before. But I was ahead of God. See, God put it on my heart, and I thought, we got to do this. No, God was just beginning to birth something, and I ran ahead of God. Because we as a church were not ready. We had to build the walls first. We had to become unified. We had to work together and, and build and become united. We had to get spiritually hungry so that we would be ready to experience radical obedience. And so what I'm asking for is I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking that 50 of you will pray and commit to sharing your story, your faith with one person in the next six months. Fifty of you. It's not a big number, not a big deal. But just imagine if 50... We're going we're gonna to give you some material. We're going to talk to you about it. We're going to help you, hold you accountable. I'm just asking you to commit to me in the next couple of weeks to say, I'll do it. That in six months' time, I'm going to reach. You say, Pastor, who am I supposed to reach? I don't know, but God's going to tell you if you commit to it. The moment you say, I'll, I'll do it, God's going to put somebody in your heart. I'm looking for 50 people. If only a quarter of the 50 people have a response, just imagine in six months, 10 people coming to know Jesus Christ. I'm looking for 50 people willing to do that. I'm looking for 20 people that are willing to pray about spending three months, one time a week, one hour a time, and discipling somebody. To find two or three people and just get together for one time a week, one hour, for three months, and for you to pour your heart into them. 
You say, who am I supposed to get? I don't know. God's going to tell you if you'll commit to doing it. You say, well, I don't know what I'd share. We'll give you an outline. But more importantly, all you've got to share is what God's done in your life. If you've been a believer of Jesus Christ for 10 years or more, you have the wisdom and experience and the life experience to be able to pour what God's shown you into somebody else. Are you willing to meet with them and to talk with them and to pray with them and to study God's Word for one hour for three months just to pour your heart into somebody? I just need 20 people. Say, Pastor, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Well, good. You may be one of the next 20 I'm looking for that are willing to be discipled. See, I'm looking for 20 people that are willing to say, I'm willing to commit to having someone hold me accountable and help me grow spiritually. To meet with them for one hour every week for 12 weeks. 20 people. 90 people. 50 praying and sharing. 20 discipling. 20 more willing to be discipled. You say, well, that doesn't add up if you're asking me to meet two or three people because I want you to get one person from here and two people from out there to disciple. And then I'm asking for nine individuals or couples who are willing to pray about helping us reach the greater county. It's estimated they've done studies that there are close to 45,000 people that live in this county that are unchurched or out of church. Don't go anywhere. And the answer in the past has always been, well, in this area we need to go start a church, and in this area we need to go start a church, and in this area we got 200 churches in this county. We don't need any more churches. You know what we need to do? We need to go into those areas and reach them for Christ. So I'm praying for nine couples or individuals that are willing to say, I will start a small group in my home to reach the people that live around me. To meet with them once a week. We'll give you the material. To meet with them once a week and just talk about Jesus. People that don't go to church anywhere. I'm not looking to get people to come to church here through that. I'm looking for you to go out and reach the people you live around. We got people that come from every part of this county. We got people from Deep Gap and Todd and, and the Tennessee line. All over. I'm looking for somebody in this area that says, I want to reach my neighborhood. I want to reach my friends, my coworkers, my, my pa- kids' friends and kids' parents. Nine people willing to say, you don't have to be a married couple. It can be two ladies that say, we want to do this. We want to get to Nine. Because I believe that if we'll do this in six months, us, those 50 that commit to sharing one, will say, I'm going to do it again. And I'll, I'll do it again the next six months. And maybe some that didn't do it will do it. And in a year's time, we will have seen double the number of people come to know Christ just from you committing and praying. And that somebody that's been discipled and gone through three months with the disciples will say, I want to do this. And they start a group. And some of these small groups after meeting for three months, somebody in that group say, listen, I want to start a group because I know people that don't go to church anywhere. And it will continue to give rebirth and rebirth and rebirth and get us focused on doing what God has called the church to do. 99 people willing to take up the challenge of radical obedience and reach one person. Let me ask you, church, who is your one person? It all starts by saying yes. I'm not going to ask you to sign up today. I'm going to ask you to pray. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about how you can be a part of that. But I firmly believe that if this is you, God's put it on your heart already. That you can pray and you can commit to sharing your gospel. Some of you are saying, I need to disciple somebody else. Some of you are saying, I need to be discipled. 
Some of you are saying, I know a perfect group of people that I can meet with to begin to share and do community with. But if he hasn't said anything to you, well, that's his way of telling you next week to come back because he's going to speak to you then about how you can get plugged in. You see, we, we've lost our focus. We need to get more intentional about sharing what God's done for us. People are dying and hungry all around us. We have so many ways to communicate, and yet we remain silent. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. Look out there. Lost sheep everywhere, but the workers are few. There's not many willing to leave the comfort, leave their schedule, leave their plans, and say, I'm going to go search for the one. Let me close with this poem. Ten little Christians standing in a line. One disliked the preacher, then there were nine. Nine little Christians stayed up very late. One slipped in on Sunday, then there were eight. Eight little Christians on the way to heaven. One took their own road, then there were seven. Seven little Christians chirping like chicks. One disliked the music, then there were six. Six little Christians seemed very much alive. One lost interest, then there were five. Five little Christians pulling for heaven's shore. One stopped to rest, then there were four. Four little Christians busy as a bee. One got their feelings hurt, then there were three. Three little Christians knew not what to do. One didn't get their way, then there were two. Two little Christians, this rhyme is nearly done. They quarreled over petty stuff, then there was one. One little Christian can't do much, tis true. Brought their friend a Bible study, then there were two. Two earnest Christians, each one one more. That doubled their number, and then there were four. Four sincere Christians shared early and late. Each one won one. Then there were eight. Eight determined Christians. If they doubled as before in two short weeks, we'd have 24. God's looking for someone that's willing to allow the reckless love of God to compel them to share their story. Is it you? Let's pray.